Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz. It is Monday, May 2nd. I'm back after a little hiatus. Uh, great episode last week that I was not on. I really enjoyed it. I'm back uh, primarily because our, our good friend and colleague, Abby Mickey, is out on maternity leave as of today. She No baby as of yet. At least I haven't heard of any baby as of yet. Uh, but she's taking a little time before that baby may show up. So Abby will be gone for a little while. You're stuck with the rest of us. We'll try to keep it on the rails mostly. We got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we're, we're not going to talk about the Giro, though. Uh, you may be expecting a Giro preview episode today. We're actually going to do that as a special episode later this week. We think it's worth it's worth a special episode, basically. It's the Giro d'Italia. It is, I think, the best Grand Tour all year. So we'll get into that later this week. I imagine some of you are also waiting patiently for Ian Trellor's multi-episode massive special podcast on Mr. Nick Clark. If you read that story on the site, or maybe you started that story, then realized you didn't have 45 minutes to set aside for it. You wanted to listen to it instead. That is also coming. Uh, just not today. Uh, keep an eye out for it on this. So if you're subscribed to the segment of this podcast, you will see it pop up on wherever you get your podcast. So keep an eye out for that. Now let's say hello to everybody. We've got Johnny Long on today. How are you, Johnny? Very well, thank you, Kaylee. And Ronan. What's up, Ronan? Um, good. Very, very good. You got your you got your thing off. I got my thing off my leg and they told me it was gonna be terrible and I would feel like I took steps backwards and it was gonna be very painful. And it was none of the above. So that's fantastic nice. news. I saw that you were already zwifting. Yep. I've been on the bike three days in a row. I'm not venturing outside. It's not, that's about too soon for that. But um, they told me I'd be on crutches for six weeks. So I used them for about six hours and that was it. It's just a rounding error. It's just a rounding error. What's the FTP these days? How are we I doing? I don't know, but the max was 200. <laughs> <laughs> Probably and about the same at this, point, my, <laughs> at this point in time. My tibia was sufficiently healed to get the cage off. It's not sufficiently healed to do an FTP test. Bummer. Well, when you can do that, you please do let us know. We yes. want to know what that number is. That's what we and of course, and of <laughs> and of course, Dane Cash. How are you, Dane? Yeah, doing good. Congrats on Liverpool being really good once again. Uh, let's get into today's episode. We got some bike racing to talk about. We're going to talk about well, Tour de Romandie and Rowan Dennis and a bit of a a, a bad time trial. Uh, granted, it was an uphill time trial, but we're going to talk about. Rowan Dennis' bad time trial. We're going to talk about Alexander Vlasov and, well, is he an actual contender for the Tour de France? Simon Yates and his uh, Goldilocks Asturias. We'll get into that in a little bit. And, uh, well, Ronan, you were listening to a, another podcast and heard a, a something briefly mentioned, which was safety cars in professional cycling. We're going to talk about that in today's Nerd Nugget. Does pro cycling need like F1 style, auto racing style safety cars? I think there's there's there are benefits and severe drawbacks to that idea, and we'll get into it at the end of the show. Before we get into any of that, though, we've got some just sort of quick news hits here. Dane, as our news editor, you want to talk through some of these little ones? We maybe start with Gourmet extending over at Wanty. This is well, it's just good news for Wanty and good news for Benjamin Garay, right? Yeah, for uh, a pretty lengthy period, four years, uh, which is which is great. Uh, and I think everybody involved is is happy with that. Uh, that, that I mean, the team pretty quickly uh, started to be a contender in in the spring classics. Uh, they they'd not really done a whole lot at the highest level races for quite a while, uh, and I think the expectation was that. Uh, Alexander Kristoff is going to kind of lead them to maybe some results, uh, but instead it's 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 Benjamin Grimay who was very impressive this spring, obviously winning again uh, with him, and uh, and yeah, they've got him now through 2026, which is uh, I think uh, pretty cool for him too. And I th- I mean he's only 22 years old, so uh, he only just turned 22 years old, so that's that's a great sign for the future, I think, for them. 
So speaking of Wanty, I, I would have kind of put them as, I don't know, a potential potentially in danger of going down in the relegation battle, which we've talked about a little bit on the podcast in previous episodes. Uh, now this, well, Gerbeis really pretty fantastic spring has, has helped them move up the, the rankings quite a bit so far. They're not really in the relegation scrap that we assume that they would be in. There are some teams down there. Let's just do a really, really brief kind of relegation update here. Johnny, who's sitting on the on the precipice at the moment? It, there's some kind of surprising teams down there. Yeah, well, if you work from the bottom upwards, at the moment they have like five teams below the sort of red line of relegation. So it's B&B Hotels, Uno X, who are the bottom two, which I guess is to be expected, you know, the smaller squads. Then you have Total Energies, who are also a pro team. But then in the final two spaces just below the line, it's Lotto Sudal and Israel Premier Tech. Um, and then this weekend, when we had Geshka... Um, getting third overall at Romandy for Cofidis, that'll get them a few more points to move them a bit clearer. So then it, you know, the gap starts opening up and then it takes a lot to close it, really. Yeah, Cofidis is now just above that line. Uh, I mean, really not looking good for Lotto and and Israel Startup Nation, which is which are two teams with pretty decent budgets, particularly Israel Startup Nation. I mean, it's got to be one of the richest teams in the sport, or at least sort of has the most available to them, even if they're not using it all. I mean, they're, you know, backed by a billionaire, right? And yet, they find themselves way down there with very few results so far this season, and potentially pretty dramatic impact on well, on their future, really. I mean, if, if they if they lose that pro team status going into next year, who knows what happens to that team? Who knows what happens to the backing? I, I mean, I would assume Sylvan Adams would kind of stick around, but you never know. And that's that's I think that's what makes this whole relegation narrative interesting. Uh, Johnny, you said off air earlier that it makes cycling feel like a real sport. Like it, may, <laughs> it makes it feel like, you know, some of the big European leagues. Now, as Americans, we don't really do relegation. We do closed leagues. Uh, we like to guarantee money for our owners, but it does make it feel a little bit more like a like a proper European sport. So yeah, Intermarche, Wanty, having a pretty good season. They're well up there, but there are some surprising teams down near the relegation line. Just on Israel Premier Tech there, I was uh, speaking to Alex Dowsett last week about the launch of a new disc and we got slightly off track so off track in fact that we started talking about the relegation battle and he was saying it's not really a factor for the team at the moment they're not really focusing on it now I did also hear the team reference why they brought such a strong squad to Tour of Turkey as you know part of the reason for that was to get points um, but interestingly he did say that Certainly, a lot of the writers and teams think that this relegation and promotion battle or system is is quite flawed. Now, we because we had an engineer there who was determined to talk about disc wheels, we didn't really get to go down the track much further. But um, it it was certainly interesting to you know hear that. I, I suppose the the world tour teams, especially, are going to not like this system. Uh, the Alex's point was that there's got there is world tour teams who, you know have the budget and want to remain world tour who might be forced down to pro continental but there's also pro conti teams who may well be forced up to world tour and don't want to be like alpes and phoenix who famously don't particularly want to be a world tour team they can pick and choose the races they go to they'll get an invite to any race they want to go to uh so yeah it's it's certainly interesting it's exciting for us to watch i think but probably not the favorite things certainly amongst the the world tour teams i mean i i would assume that if you ask uh, Norwich in the Premier League, whether they like it very much, they probably t- they probably don't like. <laughs> they would it like it when they're getting promoted, but not when they're getting relegated. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. I feel like with with uh, a lot of other leagues, you have second tier teams who are looking forward to the possibility of of moving up. And I don't cycling doesn't have that as much because they're the, like like you kind of brought up. I mean, most of the pro teams, the, the second division teams, or at least a lot of them, are are happy to be at that level and. Uh, generally speaking, in the past, when teams have wanted to move up, they've been able to because uh, you know something has something has opened up. Uh, so it's kind of weird this was sort of forced on those teams whether they wanted it or not. And the big thing I think is that you know moving up to the World Tour, I don't believe that it brings any guarantees for them. It's not like they will bring in a whole lot of new sponsors. And well, it, it, the it only guarantees, guarantees is sort of the, access. Yeah. yeah, which is big. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's the whole thing, right? And, and that's, that's, you know, like the reason it works in, in football sl- slash soccer is because you all of a sudden get all that, you know, you get the Premier League broadcast money, right? And it just, it gives you a huge amount of cash. We don't want to go too far down the relegation issue. We, 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 we specifically called this out on our run sheet as something to, to talk about briefly, but nonetheless, really quickly, uh, yeah, I mean, like it, it gives you access to the Tour de France. That's the whole thing. World Tour or pro t- pro team status gives you access to the Tour de France. In theory, that should be worth a lot of money. Uh, I think the thing that's kind of missing here, and and, and you know, Alex Dowsett's kind of alluding to this, is the teams that kind of want it and deserve it already have access to, to the Tour de France, right? Like Israel Startup Nation, even if they lose pro team status, are probably going to get invited anyway, I, I would think, um, because of the wild card options for ASO and the tour. If you removed wildcard options and said only world tour teams, only pro pro teams get to go to the Tour de France, then all of a sudden this relegation battle has a lot more riding on it. But with wildcards to all these major events, it's a, it's kind of a bit wishy-washy. It, it, you know, essentially teams can get into the races that matter, that matter anyway. So it feels a bit weird, but there are, there's still consequences here. Like, you know, even though there are ways around it, Teams still want to have that guaranteed access to the tour. And when they're wandering around trying to find sponsors, being able to say, we 100% chance we will be at the Tour de France this year, which is obviously far and away the the biggest event for them from an exposure standpoint. If they can say that, they're going to be able to pull in additional money in theory. Now, again, for Israel, when you've got a billionaire backer, probably doesn't care that much. But for Kofidis, for example, maybe it's a maybe it's a bigger deal. Anyway, let's move on from relegation. Uh, I think it's a fun topic, <laughs> but we 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 don't want to harp too much here. Dane, there's a couple of little news items here. Of Anemic Van Fluten broke her wrist, unfortunately. What else we got? Well, uh, Bora had a big weekend uh, across more than one race. Uh, maybe we do. Uh, Romandy first, you you already kind of mentioned how that all played out. Uh, Ron Dennis took a, a lead into the weekend, and the race ended with a time trial. So if you didn't look at the profile, you might think that he was the lock to win. Uh, but that time trial, which it often is at the Tour de Romandy, uh, was a hill climb. And Ron Dennis did not do very well. Uh, he, he really struggled on the hill climb. Uh, Kelly, I know you've got some opinions about the aesthetics uh, which that may be the most important <laughs> part of it all. I don't. I don't know that the racing is actually all that important. <laughs> uh, I do have. I have uphill time trial stakes, but but briefly before we do get to that. So this was like a. They all did bike swaps. Most of them did, did bike swaps. They, it was like five or seven k or something like that on uh, on flat roads, and then went straight up a mountain. So a lot of them, you know, you start on a TT bike and then switch to a to a road bike. Um, I saw a. a tweet from Marco Panati saying that it was worth something like seven seconds a kilometer to be on a TT bike for those first 5k. So like a significant, basically worth doing the swap. The swap takes 10 or 15 seconds, but you gained a minute out of it. Um, worth doing the swap. <coughs> Excuse me. I think slightly surprising that Rowan Dennis did so poorly, he finished 22nd and slipped to eighth overall from, from the lead. Uh, but also not surprising really at all. And he, he actually kind of spoke to that after the race and, and said that, well, I'm never, he said this, I'm never going to be a grand tour rider. I'm never going to be a grand tour contender. And I think more than I just can't climb with the best. It's because he clearly, he was feeling the effects of even just a one week stage race, right? He finding himself at the end of three weeks and having to do that, like, you know, the, the Pogacar Roglic, Planche de Belfi, final tt right like rowan dennis knows that he's never going to to contend in something like that uh he basically said that the the roman d outing and the leadership and and dealing with that was an interesting uh an interesting test to see what he would be able to do for his teammates uh at the tour de france this year so like i said in some ways kind of surprising in some ways not really at all i think rowan dennis knows who he is and what he is and uh a, a stage race contender is not really it i think that's an interesting admission uh considering there was a lengthy period where he had really wanted to become a, a grand tour guy uh and then had wanted to kind of follow the bradley williams tom dumoulin mold uh which never worked out but uh i think it's interesting that to hear him 
kind of come out and say that um, and acknowledge that, you know, his his skill sets kind of kind of take him in another direction. Yeah, his coach, Neil Henderson, uh, who I, I know quite well and I've talked about this with before, uh, was definitely trying to sort of push him into that mold for a little while. Not push him, but help him get to where he wanted to be. Um, but it sounds like that project is is well and truly over. Obviously, he can still put in pretty good rides. I mean, he was leading the Tour of Romandy for, for a while. But yeah, I, I think that they've they've come to acknowledge that in the modern landscape, he's, he's not going to be able to convert himself like... Uh, well, Bradley Wiggins was, or Chris Froome was able to do, or Garrett Thomas was able to do over at Ineos. And we often look at that like the the requirements on the bike, you know, lose weight, maintain power, go uphill fast, and back yourself in the time trial. But I think you know part of the part of the thing about turning yourself into a GC rider is just the lifestyle commitments as well. It's literally a twenty four seven job for probably about three hundred and forty days of the year, uh, and that's just not for everybody that gets and and increasingly so now when we see the you know the tiny margins that the teams are working on in terms of you know reducing or increasing your watts per kilo as much as possible and that ultimately means reducing body weight as much as possible for quite a few of them and that is not an easy thing to do constantly but being a domestic you can you know take it even just a one percent step back from that can make a heck of a difference seems to have broken Bradley Wiggins. <laughs> like, maybe his brain. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. He's, I think he looks a happier person now, but he certainly does not look like the Bradley Wiggins that won the Tour de France when we saw him, uh, when we saw him at Roubaix just a couple weeks ago. Uh, yeah, he's a different shape now. He posts been lifting a lot of heavy things. He posts pictures on his Instagram like going for a run, but then there's like a packet of cigarettes on the bench, and it's just like, what is <laughs> what is this vibe you're going for? It kind of works, but also it's just bizarre, isn't it? I kind of love it. Yeah. Like I said, I, I think that monk like life, I think it cracked him. I, I think it genuinely cracked him. And he just like swung all the way in the opposite direction and started like I'm gonna be an Olympic rower or, or whatever the heck that he tried to do for a little while, and now he's just sort of wandering around in leather jackets and cool sunglasses and I'm into it. Uh, I like the new Bradley Wiggins quite a lot, actually. Anyway, let's get back to get back to Romandy. And I, I just have a I have an opinion. I was sitting there watching this this time trial and uh, in, in Romandy and it, it struck me. And I know that I've said in the past that I, I don't particularly like time trial bikes. Um Part of that's just because I find them really uncomfortable and terrible to, to ride, and I don't understand why anyone would want to do so if, if given the option to do something else. Uh, but also, I am, I am, you know, I like the aesthetics of cycling. I think that uh, looking like a, a I don't know, th- there's like a, a cyclist can look good on the bike or look bad on the bike, just like a runner can look good running or or look like a jumble of elbows and knees running, right? And we've, we've talked many, many times about riders that sort of look right and look don't and don't look right. Uh, I would just like to say that the the road bike combined with aero helmet TT gear is not a look that I particularly enjoyed uh, aesthetically over the weekend. <laughs> and I would like to rescind some of my prior comments about time trial bikes primarily because I think that if we're going to go, if we're going to wear aero helmets, basically, I think we have to go all in. The whole package is just a much uh, nicer, just a much nicer thing to look at than this sort of weird halfway step that we had over the weekend. I think, Kayla, you need to buy a time trial bike. I actually go out and That's buy not one. going to happen. No, but no. Hear, hear me out, because <laughs> if more people bought them, then we could have more development in them, and they could be light enough to use an uphill time trials, and we wouldn't have to have aero helmets and road bikes. <laughs> but, I'm not doing it. I'm okay. not taking that one for the team. Well, Absolutely not. On, on a similar note, then I, I sort of came re- watching this time trial. I sort of came to the realization that the UCA is actually as much of a bastion as we tend to give them, and as much as we laugh about them measuring sock height and that, I, I realized that the UCA is actually uh, acting in our best interests. It's 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 actually there protecting us, saving us from ourselves because. The only thing that could have been worse than the time trial helmet and road bike setup would be knee-high aero socks, which, <laughs> given the advantage that they do provide, and speaking from experience, you if you have the option, you go for them. 
um, because otherwise you're throwing away time. And for myself personally, like that, the Everesting record I broke last year is obviously a hugely proud thing for me to have done. But when I look at photos of that, very high aero socks just destroyed. I, I, I can't even look at photos of that day. <laughs> it's just destroyed. Uh, so thank you, UCI. I want to. I want to be very clear here that that you know those of the, those of us at the Cycling Tips podcast are are. We're very much in the camp of you can wear whatever the heck you want on your bicycle. However, there is in racing, there's a certain aesthetic that that I think that we're looking for. There's a reason why Fausto Coppi and 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 Oncatil were were icons beyond their ability on the bicycle is because they looked the part. And I think it is it's important. And yes, I, I thank the UCI for uh preventing us from having to watch knee-high socks on a daily basis in professional cycling. I mean, frankly, like most of those rules, a lot of the rules around that they, that, that the UCI has developed around bikes are, are literally just designed to make bikes look like bikes. And, and they, they said that when those, they were first creating those rules in sort of 1999 to 2001, which is when that rule book was, was really written. They, the UCI said that quite openly, like, no, 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 we're, we're, you know, preserving the traditional aesthetic of the bicycle. That's why, there are rules about it having to have, you know, two triangles and where the tubes have to be and how big they can be and things like that. It is very much about making sure that we don't end up on triathlon bikes, <laughs> for, for example. Yeah, uh, recumbents, recumbents are way faster than up, upright bikes, right? I mean, you know, if you really... Did you consider a recumbent for the uh, of course the Everesting did. record, Ronan? <laughs> and I'm not even joking, of course I did. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they're they're significantly faster. The, the recumbent did destroy ground. the hour record for was it part of the 1920s, and then it was banned. So by yeah, the UCI yeah, so I, for the right reasons. Like I said, it, it's it's part of it's part of the rules. It's part of the reason why those rules exist. So yeah, thank you, UCI. That's the first first time we're going to say that in a, in a while. Maybe the last time for for a little while. <laughs> Let's continue. Let's continue onward. There was. There are some interesting storylines elsewhere uh, at Romandy, and I think one of the one of the most interesting to me was Alexander Vlasov, and you know, ended up winning the race. Is he a is he a legit Tour de France contender now? I mean, he said at the race after winning uh, that he that that was his next objective was the Tour de France was his, was his next objective. He absolutely demolished that time trial. Is he a is he a legit contender? I think he'd be a legit Giro or Vuelta contender. Uh, at the Tour de France, it's hard to consider anybody a contender beyond Tade Pogacar. Uh, you know, maybe maybe Roglic, but he's just so far above the rest of the field that it's kind of hard to consider. I mean, Vlasov could have won this race by ten minutes, and I still would think that Tade Pogacar is going to, you know, run away with the Tour de France. Uh, but I think if Vlasov were to go to the Vuelta later in the year, um, or if he had decided to go to the Giro instead of the Tour, uh, he could he could definitely be up there. Yeah, I think the Giro seems like a bit of a missed opportunity for him. Like when we look at Vlasov's season so far, well, he won he won Valenciana fourth in UAE Tour. He was as high as fifth in Paris, but he DNF the final stage. Third in Azulia. Uh, third in Flesh Malone, and now he has won Tour de Romandy. It seems like the perfect build up to the Giro. <laughs> it's it's what you would expect from a Giro candidate. But yeah, at the same time, you know, we're talking about winning the Tour de France. Could he podium at the Tour de France? Certainly. Could he be top five? Certainly. And that's you know, for a rider who is still let me just check. For a rider who is still twenty six years of age, that's a massive progression in the right direction. I'm sure Bora would be quite happy to take someone uh you know on the podium at the tour um and any year that they're really transitioning the squad so it as much as we might like to see him at the zero it might seem like the right idea i, I do think as well that the tour will have some something for him should he get through the, that first week yeah and, and bora is one of those teams that uh well it's not funded by a billionaire it's not funded by some just cycling super fan right they, they have a real commercial sponsor and for a real commercial sponsor the tour de france is the only thing that matters right i mean if you if you watch american american television uh you will note that bora uh well they do a bunch of ads on nbc every summer during the tour de france for their 
shower heads and faucets and, <laughs> and things like that. Those things are related, right? And and so if you're if you're sitting there as the director of, of Bora and you have been you have been told or the manager of Bora and you've been told to you know get the maximum exposure, you're going to send the only guy who might do almost anything to the Tour de France, right? And so I, I think that you know from that lens, it makes perfect sense from from a purely sort of athletic lens and from us as as sort of cycling super fans who care more about like a really good race. I think we would love to see Vlasov at the Giro, but I, I, it's fully understandable to me that they're going to send him to the Tour de France. Also, even though, like, I guess everyone watching has sort of given up on anyone but Pogacar winning the Tour, it's kind of good that the riders haven't, because otherwise it would just be, you know, three weeks of him winning the time trials, winning the mountain stages. So we've got to be grateful for that, at least. I'm, I'm going to do my bit for those commercial sponsors, and that Bora is the hob top air extractor, and Hans Grohe is the shower heads and the taps and, and all that, so... There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I clearly have been but watching them very closely. Was, in my in my defense, I I don't actually watch the. This is according to friends because I am at the Tour de France. <laughs> the Tour de France. <laughs> I haven't actually seen these commercials myself. Sorry, Bora and Hansgrohe. I apologize. And I think Mr. Bora and Mr. Hansgrohe will be quite happy today if they because just before this podcast, I switched on to Pro Cycling Stats, and on the homepage, the only thing you can see is the Bora jersey because they've won. Uh, Romandy that we're talking about. They won the last stage of Romandy, the second last stage of Romandy, and also, um, what's that other race called? Eschborn Frankfurt. <laughs> yes, thank you. I knew what it was called. I just didn't want to <laughs> attempt it without having it written in front of me. <laughs> well, Ronan, was it you I was talking to and we decided we were like going through all the World Tour teams and we decided that Bora Hansgrohe are probably the most ethical of all of them because like, if you're selling like, shower heads and extractor fans... I mean, now we'll find out there's something like there's some terrible disaster behind them. But <laughs> you mean like from a sustainability and and et cetera standpoint, yeah, and, just like and also you know not torturing people and things like just that. Just like general ickiness, yeah, they're pretty, yeah, pretty low down. That's I yeah, I guess you're kind of right, and it, it does feel like I, when I mentioned that they have sort of a purely commercial sponsor, like that that's actually it's it's increasingly rare, mm. right? Uh, you know, EF is is a purely commercial sponsor. Kofi Dees is a purely commercial sponsor. But we sort of we have this sort of increasing number of of yeah, just just rich guys basically. Like Ineos, Ineos, Ineos is not a commercial sponsor, right? Like they, they don't get any marketing benefit <laughs> other than maybe a bit of greenwashing out of out of sponsoring that team and and attempts to sell you know, their, their Land Rover Defender ripoff thing. Uh, they, like they don't, the, the purpose of that team is just that Jim Ratcliffe has more money than God and is trying to figure out what on earth to do with it. Um, didn't he almost just buy Chelsea? Yeah. Sorry, this is yeah, no, really not to, a football podcast. No, I was about to bring that up. I was, <laughs> the, he's trying to buy it for the equivalent of what it would cost to run Ineos for eight or Ineos Grenadiers for 80 years. So that kind of just puts <laughs> everything into perspective, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ineos Grenadiers, the cycling team, is like like couch cushion fines for, <laughs> yeah. for Jim Ratcliffe. Uh, like, it's like, oh wow, we found like seven quarters. We'll use that to run the cycling team. Yeah, it's a, it's a totally different it's a totally different scale. But I I, I agree. I mean, Bora is just a Bora Hansgrohe make apparently. Uh, I apologize. The the what like fume hood things is Bora. And then it's, Hansgrohe it's is an extractor the, fan, but it's like ex- at the level uh, okay. of the hub. Rather than being above the cooker, it's at the level of the hub and it extracts down and into the system in a way. I can't believe how much free promotion for Hansgrohe have got. They're gonna be, there's just going to be people in offices in Germany just jumping up and down on the tables. <laughs> Thanks to Bora for not sponsoring today's episode. Uh, if you would like to... Shoot Steve Brawley an email. Uh, <laughs> let's let's move on a little bit. I, actually, really briefly, tangent here because I just remembered this. Uh, Do you guys see the the Oleg Tinkoff news that popped up? Yeah. In the New York, it was on the homepage of the New York Times yesterday. Uh, so Oleg Tinkoff. For any new cycling fans, you are going to have no idea who I'm talking about. It's worth like googling him. Like Google like Oleg Tinkoff Alberto Contador fight. Or something like that, uh, because Tinkoff obviously ran a professional cycling team for quite some time. He had Contador on the team. He had Peter Sagan on the team at, at one point. Um, he is a character. And I would say that his time in cycling was not uh, 
he was not beloved. Uh, he he was he was maybe beloved by media like us because he would just say wacky wild things all the time and we get good stories out of him. But you know he was he was a bit off the wall and and he kind of came in like ah oh, this is a silly a silly you know cheap little sport. He's he was a billionaire. It probably is a billionaire at this point. Although we'll get to that in a second. Uh, you know again like Ratcliffe was just sort of just this like play money. And he was just this wild character who would show up and he would come to the races and he would give these great quotes and he would talk about riders and how they weren't training hard enough and like all sorts of, of fun stuff. Uh, and then it all kind of blew up and he left the sport a couple of years ago uh, and the team just sort of disintegrated. And uh, yeah, anyway, he's back in the news uh, because he's one of the few Russian. The tie here is that is that Alexander Vlasov is also Russian. Uh, he's one of the few Russian he 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 doesn't like the term oligarch and i think that sort of by the dictionary definition of oligarch he's actually not he's one of the few sort of self-made billionaires in russia um one of the few russian billionaires who has really come out forcefully against the war in ukraine uh, and it's actually it's kind of changed my my view of this man because like i said when we were when we were covering him when he was when he was doing all this wacky stuff in pro cycling he was just this kind of like strange pariah guy. Um, and he's, he's yeah, my view of him has changed because he is, he's literally put his life in danger. Uh, he mentioned, he did this big interview with the New York times over the weekend. And, um, you know, he mentioned the fact that, that he's hired additional security because his friends in the Russian security services have told him that he basically, uh, not, not so much that there's a bounty on his head, but he's, he's been, He's been singled out as somebody who may run into trouble with the Russian security services, which is not something you generally want. And he's just, yeah, he's, he's come out twice now, actually forcefully against the the Russian invasion. As a result, has been forced, allegedly, to sell uh, the last remaining stake that he has in his company. It's about 35% left in Tinkoff Credit Systems at, according to him, about 3% of its actual value which still makes him a very, very, very rich man. But instead of being worth like $20 billion, he's worth about 3% of that. Uh, so he's seen, you know, sort of serious personal harm, potentially actual personal harm uh, going forward. And I, I just thought it was worth a mention because, well, yeah, anybody who is who is watching cycling through the Tinkoff era will know this man somewhat well. We'll be very familiar with him. And he has definitely shifted... He's shifted in a different direction, uh, and like I said, my view of him has certainly improved through all of this, I think, just because he's, he's been willing to come out and say exactly what he thinks, which is always sort of what made him crazy in the cycling world, and is now highly commendable in the world of geopolitics. So, that little bit aside, I thought it was worth a mention, and if you haven't seen it, go go check out that interview. Um Maybe we'll run a little story on it today if one of us one of us has time to get to it. Let's move on. Really brief mention of what the Asturias. Uh, Dane, some interesting results from Asturias this this weekend. Yeah, um, Simon Yates had two good days at the Vuelta Asturias, uh, and Ivan Sosa won the Vuelta Asturias. Uh, I think would be the easiest way to sum it up. Uh, Yates was great on the first stage. Uh, he lost a ton of time on the second stage. Uh, and then he was great again on the third stage. So uh, he looked good when he was good. And I think that's uh, I think that's a, a positive sign. That's a promising sign. I, I should never use that word in this sport. It's a promising sign <laughs> for... Could mean could mean lots of different things at this point. Yeah, so. I, I, even after all the years, I, oh, I still do that sometimes. A promising sign for the Giro d'Italia. Um despite his kind of meltdown. I mean, literally, because he said it was too hot. So he, he may have been melting a little bit uh, on the second day. Um, hasn't, hasn't he often complained of being too cold? Uh, you know, depending on when you're racing, it can be hot. It can be cold. I, I can, I can relate to Simon. I mean, I don't get paid to ride my bike professionally, but I can relate. Which, which bowl of porridge are we talking about here? <laughs> The one that's just right, Ronan. Oh, okay. The one that's just right. So that was stage one and stage three was the just right porridge. They were the just right ones. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, stage two, porridge too hot. The eventual winner of the race, Ivan Sosa, uh, 
also, uh, like Simon, it's heading to the Giro uh, with a, with a team that is also going to have uh, Alejandro Valverde on it. I think Sosa is looking good, and he he's got uh, he, he's only twenty four. I mean, he's been around for a little while. He came from Androni and went over to Sky, and after three years there, left uh, and joined Movistar this this season. And he's a rider that we've talked about having a lot of potential in the past, uh, but he had not really kind of lived up to that very much with any of us. He hadn't really gotten a whole lot of opportunities, honestly, uh, for himself. Um, and I think he's got to be happy with the way things worked out this weekend and uh, optimistic about what's what's ahead. Where, where was he been for the last like, three years? Because when he came through, he was supposed to be the next sort of Egan Bernal. Yeah, he was with Ineos for three years, wasn't he? With Androni before that, and was yeah. due to sign for Trek, and Ineos yeah. stole him, if I remember right. Yeah, uh, that was a big story. And went a yeah. lot of went a lot of legal baller to steal him from Trek, uh, thinking that he could be not the next Bernal because Bernal wasn't really Bernal yet, but could be the next Bernal alongside Bernal, who would be the next first Bernal. Um, <laughs> but it didn't really materialize that way, uh, and. I've always sort of wondered since, you know, uh, how did, you know, obviously they didn't feel too good about that at, at any else because yes, he had three years, but he didn't get very many opportunities. He has now moved on to Movie Star, where he is getting opportunities and starting to get results. I remember him going well somewhere earlier in the year as well. Could have been Valenciana or somewhere. Uh, but at the time that they were having that huge battle with Trek to sign him, uh, UAE were quietly in the background going away and signing Tade Pogaccia. Um I kind of wonder since then, you know, have any of us just been, we heard Wiggins talking about, you know, they should have just thrown a whole lot of money and signed Pogaccia. Um, yeah, how, how have they actually th- made connected the dots there since? And um, quite interesting. But Sosa is, you know, no doubt about it, he is a talent. He proved it this weekend at Asturias and is going to go into the Giro as a co-leader alongside his granda. Feels, feels like he should have just gone to Trek, right? Like, I mean, it, it, you know, like for for his career, I think that was probably. I'm sure he got paid a lot. I think that's why he went to Ineos. But it feels like he should have just gone to Trek. It would have been. I think. I think he would have had more opportunities in the last couple of years. For certain, yeah. Although you know, he's probably best suited to the kind of style of racing that they have in the Giro. And of course, with Nibali being there, perhaps he wouldn't have got the same opportunities at, at Trek. Who who knows? It's all ifs and buts, I guess. But just on Yates for a second at Asturias. Now I've. I've, I was going to say I've ridden. I have ridden Volta Asturias. It was five days when I ridden it, and much like many other races I did, I, I DNF'd Volta Asturias, which was quite the honor on, on the final stage, <laughs> as seemed to happen to me quite a bit. But um, I remember it, it is it, it is probably one of the toughest races on the calendar that doesn't get a, a whole lot of uh, attention. Uh, the year I was at it, I think Gardselli won the overall, if I remember right. Uh, so that kind of tells you how... Tough it might have been, um, but it's it's literally either like twenty percent gradient upwards or the same downwards. They're very there. There was literally no easy stages, and if I look at stage two there, that Yates lost twelve minutes. I know he was complaining about the heat and that, but looking at the finishing times, Sosa won the stage, uh, and then you had like literally three or four other guys within a minute, and then you're another minute to the next group of three riders and another minute to another group of five or six riders it was you know the the race was blown to pieces and uh, looking at the profile it doesn't look that hard but that is the nature of racing in Asturias that it is just it's very tough roads up and down you know continually on the on the power and I wouldn't be surprised if Yates has just you know backed off for that you know he, he can't be that good in stage one and that good in stage three and then 12 minutes down on stage two uh he, he might have had some problems with the heat but he maybe also has the experience now to say well you know this is the Volta Asturias preparation for my main goal which is the Giro and I'm not quite feeling my best today so I'm just going to completely pull the pin and by losing 12 minutes I don't think he was you know minus 12 minutes bad he was maybe a minute off the pace and rather than empty his tank cost him something in the Giro he's just you know he, he's, he's completely backed off yeah I mean the Gates at this point is he's been around the block a couple times so I think that that's uh, probably a probably a, a accurate assessment Ronan last little sort of news bit here Dane some additional Barra Hansgrohe yeah positive positive news for you uh, while their uh, superstar team leader of the last several years 
uh, has not really done a whole lot with his new team. Uh, Bora's remainder of the roster and the guy they brought over uh, this past transfer season, Sam Bennett, uh, looking great this weekend. He won his first race since, let's see, so it's May, uh, almost a year. Uh, he last won a stage at the Volta Algarve uh, last May. And he won Eschborn Frankfurt this weekend, which is a world tour one day, by the way. And it tends to get some decent sprinters there. Uh, he beat Fernando Gaviria. He beat Alexander Kristoff. Uh, and I think most importantly, he won a race. And I, I think that's more important for sprinters than for any other sort of specialist in cycling. Uh, if you're a Grand Tour rider or you know, if you finish second or third in a stage race, I think people say, oh, you're looking good. And sprinting is different. If you don't win... It's like what it didn't matter uh, for for a lot of these guys, and there's something to be said for kind of racking up multiple wins in a row once you get that first one. It certainly seemed that way with Cavendish last year when he went so long without winning, and then all of a sudden he was winning again. Uh, and I think this will do wonders for Bennett's confidence. Uh, so I think this is a big win for him. I know that uh, people tend to. Uh, not care too much about this race, uh, but it, it is a world tour race and he did beat some big names and he's now got a win on the docket for the first time in, like, like I said, almost a year. So uh, I think that bodes well for him for the future and, and for all, uh, all the goals that are coming up for him. The fact that he was able to do that because he had been up there in some sprints already this year. But like I said, if you're not winning, that I think that there's a big difference for sprinters. He had to get used to... Um not having Michael Morkov leading him out again, which I imagine is quite the adjustment where you just get sort of delivered to the line in a nice little package with a bow on top. And then... Yeah. And, you know, he had, he had health issues as well that I think mm. he had had to work through. And we know that he can do well whether or not he has a great lead out. I mean, it wasn't like he didn't do anything before he got the quick step. You know, he had already done quite a lot. So maybe just took a little bit of adjustment. I think it was 360 days from his last one. But it was also given that, you know, he, given everything that happened to Quickstep last year, it was basically 300 days between races. I think he got a couple of races with the Irish national team last summer, Europeans and World Championships. But, you know, beyond that, he had no racing from this time last year until, um, was it UAE Tour in February of this year? Yeah, UAE. So, you know, that, that, that's a heck of a lot of time without racing, add into the fact that he was also injured in that time. Um, Despite what Patrick Lefebvre says, uh, was he was he injured? He he was injured. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, so not only is he not racing, but he's also not training while he's injured. And so, you know, I think uh, he even said it yesterday in his post race interview that you know until now he has solely had to focus on his base, and that meant you know when if you think back at the sprints that Sam's been involved in so far this year, he's sort of at the limit when the sprint is about to take off because he's working on his base and now he's said he's had 10 days of top end work and all of a sudden it's already paying off but looking at the team as well you know he said he's lost Markov but yesterday he had Marco Haller, Jonas Koch, Niels Pollitt and then Danny Von Poppel who did an amazing job yesterday and add into that they've got Shane Archibald and Ryan Mullen as well. I'd, yeah, that would you know, do. I think it's <laughs> that's a that's a lead out train that very few other teams can rival this year. It's good to see like these sprinters sort of coming back and winning races because last year at the tour, like it was like Cavendish won his four stages, but it wasn't like a star studded sprint cast, which kind of took away from the race quite a bit. So if you have if you have Sam Bennett back at the tour this year, then it's like his own revenge tour with Quick Step, which will be potentially a nice little storyline. And then you have the Quick Step one between Jakobsen and Cavendish. So it might actually have some sort of intrigue in the sort of sprint stages rather than can Cavendish do the Merckx record. Speaking of, of comebacks into the headlines, uh, maybe maybe for less good reasons here, uh, Stephen Roach was found guilty of fraud uh, quite recently and ordered to repay 730000 Euros. Uh, this is reported by Extra.ie, a Spanish court that found uh, Roche had used assets from his Mallorca-based business Shamrock Events, just adhering to stereotype there, uh, to fund his own lifestyle rather than pay his creditors. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of additional information on this, and we also don't want to get sued for defamation, and so we're going to just... 
we're just going to leave that one there uh, and dig into this a little bit further in the future. But, you know, you should know that uh, one of Ireland's greatest cyclists has now been found guilty of fraud. Not Ronan. Those al- anyway, <laughs> not Ronan. If you tuned in right there, you might not realize. <laughs> just want to make sure everybody knows that. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not one of Ireland's greatest cyclists. <laughs> Uh, as for the frogs yeah. no comment <laughs> 730,000 euros is a lot of euros uh, again you know these are I guess these aren't alleged anymore because they, they the court has found that he needs to repay them um, and there's some other storylines swirling around this we've seen some some other uh, folks comment on this who were, were kind of close to it and again uh, we don't have all of the facts at the moment and so we're not going to just spout off about things we don't know yet but we will come back to that story i'm sure because uh it's fascinating and sad i it really is quite sad speaking of spouting off about stuff that we don't know about yet let's do nerd nugget nerd alert nerd alert nerd alert nerd alert. let's get into nerd, nerd nugget alert. we've got kind of two nerd topics alert. today so one is is quite brief one is uh there's just some there's some new time trial bikes coming out and and maybe maybe tri bikes we're not really sure but a Red Bull TT slash tri bike that's what we're gonna start with and then we're gonna talk uh, safety cars a little bit Ronan tell me about the Red Bull bicycle real quick there's not much to really tell you yet except that it is a some sort of partnership between BMC Switzerland uh, the bike company and Red Bull Racing and involves Fabian Cancellara and a bike. An aero bike of some sort. Now, a couple of years ago, well, at least a couple of years ago, could be longer, we've seen a short ad, very similar to what we've seen last week on the BMC and Red Bull Instagram accounts, and it was a very similar thing. Fabian Cancellara riding a bike, BMC and Red Bull were involved, and at the end of it, Cancellara looks down at this bike that we can't see in shot and said, if this works, it changes everything. And then we didn't really, well, either it didn't work so Can it I didn't hear that change our accent, please? Uh, not for me, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I do Belgian only, I'm just, I don't do Swiss. I'm, I'm just, I, I just, I'm sort of, uh, have, have, we've all seen Cancellar's acting chops before, so I'm just wondering how, how accurate uh, your portrayal was there. Uh, I, I didn't have any faith from the acting that it was actually going to work at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what else do we know now? What, what Have we learned anything? So we didn't really hear anything more about it until about a month or two months ago, Red Bull Racing announced that BMC are new. They're, they're now their official bike supplier uh, for pits, uh, just to having the pits and for track recons, they were going to use BMC bikes. And just of last week, uh, again, on both Instagram accounts, they put out a new video again with Fabian Cancellara in it. And this time we got a couple of glimpses of what is most definitely time trial bike and in my suspicion is most likely a triathlon specific non-UCI legal bike given that the Ironman World Championships are in St. George this coming weekend uh, which sort of ties in well either they've got a new time trial bike for the Giro or they've a new triathlon bike for Ironman and my money is on them having a new triathlon bike of course I will now be proved wrong no doubt but um, I also we also seen a video from, you might not know him, Katie, a guy called Christian Blumenfeld. He won a gold medal in the swim bike run race at the Olympics last year. Uh, Norwegian, one of the best triathletes in, on the planet, who is going for sub seven hour, the first ever sub seven hour Ironman triathlon. And KDEX have developed a new set of wheels and a bike for him. And we got a sneak peek of that on Blumenfeld's Instagram last week. And again, it looks very much like a triathlon-only, non-UCI legal uh, time trial bike. And when I asked KDX about this, they couldn't confirm anything other than to say that it is, yes, just a triathlon-only bike. Uh, But it looks very much like the Hope Lotus bike with the super wide forks that extend all the way up to the... The handlebars, uh, a bit like the Shiv triathlon bike from Specialized, that sort of front end on it. Uh, so sort of eagerly waiting to see what 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 comes there and what this new wheel set from KDEX is also another time trial wheel set. Uh, but again, details are very thin on the ground. And speaking of details thin on the ground, 
Panarello apparently have a new time trial bike also in the works soon to be maybe not be announced but soon to make soon to break cover and sort of hoping that it will break cover at the Giro this weekend and give me something to write about <laughs> seems likely if they're gonna if they're gonna launch it at some point in the next month or so if you're not gonna wait till the Tour de France you might as well launch it now right Mm-hmm. Or you might, you know, just have Luke Plapp talk about it seemingly when he shouldn't have <laughs> on a video Oops. I was watching over the weekend. Oops. <laughs> All right, that's um, that's enough about triathlon bikes. Hmm. Really, anything is enough about triathlon bikes. Uh, let's move into my point. Just for the reason for that being a nerd nugget was just that you know the question is always asked: What would time trial bikes look like if we didn't have the UCI rules? Well, it seems like we're about to find out because. Not only are Kadex developing a new triathlon-only bike, but Red Bull Racing and all the aerodynamic expertise that presumably they have seemingly are developing a, a tri-time trial bike with BMC. I mean, we've we've seen F1 collaboration before, like McLaren, the you know specialized McLaren stuff. Uh, you know, going two hundred miles an hour is slightly different from going twenty. 832 miles an hour. Whatever, but what if we didn't have the UCI rules? Would we be doing 200 miles an hour on a bike? I mean, if you remove the <laughs> rules around motors, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Ah, I, I, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it. Because like the McLaren stuff ended up being mostly around, um, I think, like carbon fiber and sort of like yes, material right. science more so than, than aerodynamics. Uh, which, you know, obviously F1 teams also have a huge amount of expertise in. But... Yeah, we've just never seen. I mean, the, they're different enough that we've never seen like like the, the specialized McLaren stuff didn't show up and it wasn't just like massively better than everything else that had been before, right? So we'll we'll wait and see what that looks like. Now, speaking of F one, uh, in car racing, when who wants to explain this? I've I've talked a lot this episode, Ronan, you have an entire indoor F1 setup in your house. You explain <laughs> to the good people out there what a safety car is in auto racing as briefly as possible because I assume most folks will have some idea what this thing is. Yeah, basically if there's an incident on track, a safety car can come out and control the pace of the the, the drivers and the racers behind uh, to slow the, the pace of the whole race down to give marshals a safe opportunity to clear the track. It's like... If there's a bad crash, but it's not bad enough to stop the race, sort of thing. If it's you know if it's bad enough to stop the race, they'll stop the race. But if it's okay that the race can continue, you you still don't want the car flying around at two hundred miles an hour. So they put a safety car in front to slow down the whole pack, gets everybody in one position on track at the one time, and they can they can clear the track. Um, and I was listening to uh, a, a, a podcast with Michel Woods, famous Belgian commentator, and Tom Boonen. They had like a Spring Classics Roundup uh, podcast last week. And they briefly asked a question. It, it had come up somewhere on Twitter when we had that horrific crash at Liège-Bastogne-Liège last week. Should we not have safety cars in cycling? Um, so, you know, Boonen and Woits both briefly discussed it, very, very briefly discussed it. But it, it, it sort of seemed to me like a sort of a good idea. And then, you know, we started thinking about it. And there's, there's definitely pros and cons to it. Uh, but it seems like it could be one solution to the sort of problem we have around, you know, how do how do we uh, how do we properly attend to a rider who may have suffered a concussion without stopping the race? Or um, yeah, so that that was sort of where the the topic came from. Yeah, I think back to like George Bennett at the Tour de France a couple of years ago, where he crashed literally on camera. People saw it. You know, he's all dazed and confused, and gets up and keeps riding and has to chase back on because he has no other option. And that's that's essentially the thing that we're that you're trying to prevent here. Now obviously the the downside, and this is the same downside as in F1 or any other car racing, is that it it can dramatically impact the racing, right? I mean, the entire F1 World Championship was sort of decided by a safety car last year. Uh, so you kind of have to accept that. Right. If if you're going to implement something like this, you have to accept the fact that the racing will be changed by this thing, and you're weighing the 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 downside there versus the benefit to George Bennett not having to immediately get back on his bike after clearly having a concussion and keep riding. Right. Uh, 
And that's, that's the hard thing. And that's what cycling kind of hasn't been willing to do yet is to fully, well, to, 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 to make that, that bargain, right. To, to decide that the safety of the riders is more important than the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the authenticity of the race, like the, the organicness, you know, or the race natural. playing out. Yeah. The, the organic nature of the race, a good way to put it. Um, you know, the race playing out as it, as it would have. So what exactly, like, what, what would this look like if we, if cycling did it? Well, it, it, it actually wouldn't be all that difficult to implement because there is already, you know, vehicles in front of the race. There, there are neutral service vehicles in front of the peloton if there's no breakaway. Once the peloton, once a breakaway is formed, then the neutral service vehicles fall in behind the breakaway. So you have, you have at all times a vehicle somewhere you know, at varying distances in front of the peloton. And then regardless of whether there's a breakaway or not, you still have lead vehicles in front of both the breakaway and the peloton. You have you have lead vehicles as the first part of the race that, that you know, passes over any stretch of road. So it wouldn't be all that difficult to implement, have one of those vehicles slow down X amount and all the riders have to, you know, stay behind it the exact same way as they do in a neutral section at the start of a race. And if somebody crashes or punctures or, you know, has an incident in the neutral section, the race is slowed down to an extent that they can get back on easily before the race has started. And that sometimes means that the race will get to kilometer zero and go beyond kilometer zero and the race will still be neutralized. There, there will be no racing until whoever had the incident in the neutral section can get back into the peloton and then the race will start. So it it's not that it would be impossible to implement or anything even new to the riders. It's the the bigger issue the bigger question mark for me is not e- like I'm not even concerned about impacting the organic nature of the race. I think we have to just get to the point where we understand and we can, I think we do all understand, but we need to sort of accept that, you know, the, this is people's lives that we're dealing with here. And if somebody has a serious accident and the first instinct for any bike racer is to get back on your bike, regardless of the, you know, the condition you're in, if you're capable of standing and sitting on a bike, you you attempt to get on the bike. And we, we just need to, you know, n- nobody will remember if a race is slowed down at the pivotal moment because a safety car was introduced, but people will remember if somebody's health is severely impacted by it. The bigger question for me is just how how, how and when do we implement, or not how, but when do we implement it? Is it if it's a crash of five riders or more, or, you know, is it a crash of uh, X amount of, you know, at, at X speed or because you can have a single rider crash and it's, you know, very, very serious or you can have a hundred riders crash and it's not all that serious. You know, so, so that would be the bigger question mark for me. Yeah. I mean, we've discussed in the past sort of like a re- reverse safety car thing where like you can get in a van and get brought back up to where you were <laughs> like that. That's maybe like maybe the solution is slightly different for cycling. Right. Um, I, was, I was thinking as you were talking there, what a cycling safety car would be. Um, Cause in, like F1, they stick a relatively fast but much slower vehicle out in front of them, right? It's like, what would you – could you just stick like an amateur cyclist at the front of the peloton be like, ride as hard as you can and everyone has to stay behind you? I'll do that. <laughs> stick, a, stick a 12-year-old out there or something like that? Like, no, everyone has to go <laughs> this kid's pace <laughs> until, the, until the finish. Behind everyone swerving around trying to keep their tires warm. No, maybe maybe not that. What 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 what? Yeah, let's let's talk let's talk a little bit about the the kind of details of this, right? Is it a safety car in the same way as a as an F1 race or is there some other similar solution that is maybe less just less disruptive? I think the first thing I thought when we started talking about this is that it take about 0.2 seconds for teams to start exploiting it for for sort of tactical gain. So say your GC rider gets dropped then maybe like one of your one of your lesser domestiques um just sort of takes a tumble off off on a, a nice bit of like long grass that they've spotted. Um and then everything slows down and they catch back up. I mean that's what I would do. That that's kind of to my point in that you we wouldn't have it we obviously wouldn't have it for mechanicals. Yeah. But you you probably wouldn't have it for all crashes either. You know, and that's that's where the difficulty comes in is how mm. do you determine which crashes do require a safety car and which don't. In motor racing, it's easy because if the car is, you know, anyway on the racing line or in, in the trajectory that a car may leave the track and, you know, any possibility of even 
1% chance of hitting the car that's stranded, they call it a safety car. They just take no chances with safety. But we don't have that issue in cycling because, you know, we're going from point A to point B usually. So if someone crashes on a corner, we're not going to, they're not going to be in the way the next time we get to that corner most often. So, you know, I, I suppose the, you know, and uh, I was just about to go down a completely different rabbit hole there, but <laughs> I won't open that one. If I think if if we could have some sort of scale of, you know, uh, like last week's example on Liège is a perfect example. We all know in that exact situation, there is going to be a lot of hurt people there. And, you know, fair play to Roman Bardi, he stops to check the the health and the welfare of his, his friend, but ultimately rival in the race. Uh, and alerts the medical authority, um, personnel to where Alfleep is and how much difficulty he's in. But, you know, pretty much any other rider in that moment could just have got straight back on their bike, only focused on trying to get back into the race as quickly as possible. Yes, it was at a, a timely part of the race. But again, I think, you know, we just have to get to the point where riders' health and safety is ultimately more important than, you know, than did the did did um, such and such a writer attack on the quote to Disney or whatever the next claim was? It's you know, and the only real way I could think of implementing it just you know makes it all to, all the more difficult altogether. And that you know, in, in Formula One they have biometric gloves which can sense you know riders' heart rates, uh, respiratory rates. All uh, I think it can even like. It basically alerts the medical authorities before they get to the driver what what kind of scene they're about to land on. And if we could, you know, theoretically, we could have the same similar technology and a helmet sort of uh, measuring impacts on a helmet and similar gloves for riders measuring, you know, or at least heart rate straps that can broadcast heart rates um, live to to medical authorities and you know that could be used then to decide well this is an incident that requires a, a, a safety car because x amount of riders have experienced x amount of g-forces in this crash or something that you know the, the aerometers and that that we have nowadays they all measure g-forces accelerations decelerations you know this is not technology that cannot be implemented on the bike we have measured heart rate for decades already so you know if that could be leveraged to actually increase rider safety yeah it, it, it's going to be difficult but certainly something worth exploring well and there can this it can be a spectrum too right like in auto racing you don't go straight to a safety car you don't go straight to a red flag to stop the race like there, there are sort of different you know they'll th- throw a yellow flag in a corner and say you gotta slow down for this corner um you know maybe there's a halfway point here where Okay, yeah, for the mass pileup that we know is a huge issue, you 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 stick a safety car out, like at like at Liege. But then for all the sort of smaller crashes that happen, like I was saying before, maybe there's a maybe there's some sort of thing where you get put back into. Uh, we talked about this, I think, at the Tour de France last year. It's like a free lap in, in a criterium race where, like, if you flat or crash in a crit, in a crit, you get to go back to the start finish area. And just hop back in where you were. Like even if you were in the breakaway, you get to hop back in where you were, because that's just the way that crits work. So could you do the same thing in road racing, where you literally like put a rider in a van, check them for a concussion, and then drive them ahead of the race again, and then drop them off, and he gets to go go back into whatever group that they were in before? Like, is there sort of like a halfway point for the smaller incidents where? Again, like I come back to like the George Bennett crashing in his head in the Tour de France thing. Like, how do you, how do you how do you help that rider who's just a single person? Like, you you don't need a safety car for that event, right? Like, it's one person. They're not really. I guess I guess he kind of was a danger to others, or or a concussed rider is is a danger to others, right? Um, but I think you, you would it would be hard to get that across the line. It would be hard, it would be really hard to convince fans, and I think even riders that that was something worth doing for like one rider that fell down because frankly there's so many crashes in professional cycling that you you'd end up with safety cars half the half the day right is there sort of like a halfway point can you treat small incidents or individual incidents or two or three riders differently from these mass mass pileups and maybe the mass pileups is like the place to start you say listen next time this happens we're going to do a safety car but for the small group incidents or the individual incidents 
we haven't found a solution yet. I don't, I don't know. I think it's an interesting idea though. And I think you should have to put a 12 year old out in front of the Peloton to ride in front of everybody as fast as that 12 year old can go. And, uh, and nobody's allowed past. I think that's how it should work. Or maybe like me or Dane or somebody (laughs) on anybody. (laughs) Anyway, let's know what you think of this. Uh, yeah. Like send us a note on, on Twitter somewhere. We're easy to find. Put it, drop a drop a comment underneath the the post where this goes up on on cyclingtips.com. Let us know what you think about the safety car issue, or just sort of like safety and racing in general. I think I think it'll hit a lot of cycling fans wrong initially. Um, kind of hits me wrong initially, but then you really stop and think about it, and you start to weigh up like why am I valuing again like the organic nature of this random bicycle race versus the life of a human being and it, and it starts to kind of shift in your head a little bit uh yeah you know in car racing it's it's been decades where this has slow, slowly changed right um i think cycling just sort of needs to start that process it's a much better f1 adjacent idea than the the, the grid start which still sort of i think haunts everyone's <laughs> nightmares <laughs> that was really dumb uh, I didn't even really like, I was on the ground for that at the tour and I just didn't even really understand like, like nobody, nobody that was there really understood what on earth we were doing, uh, and why. But anyway, we don't need, we don't need to cut down that rabbit hole. If you have no idea what we're talking about, just Google Tour de France grid start. Was it, it was, was that yeah, the tour it was or the tour. Giro? It was the, the tour, tour right? <laughs> it was the tour. I was like, I was, this is about all the bike races swirl around in my head. Um, yeah, just you know, Google Tour de France grid start. Uh, it was one of the short stages of the Tour de France a couple of years ago, and uh, made no sense at all. And with that, we're going to wrap up for today. That was plenty of Cycling Tips podcast. Like I said, we've got a special Giro preview episode coming this week. We've also got uh, Ian Trellor's massive and incredibly fascinating and completely wild story about nick clark coming to your ears sometime soon thanks for listening everybody we'll be back well in like 48 hours actually see you then